Well, good morning. A big shout out to those who are watching from other countries in the world. We've been receiving word from people in pretty much most of the continents of the world that they are watching our uh, streaming services. Uh, it's one of the unique opportunities we have during this season. And, uh, and just a lot of people have been asking the question, do we intend to keep doing these uh, live streaming? And, and that was the goal from the beginning, is that we intend, yes, to live stream these services uh, from here going forward. Now, we don't know what times we'll be serving uh, live streaming those services, but we will be doing so in the future. Last week, as we continue in this series on out of 1 Peter, which again is just the timeliness of such a word, has uh, been just a lot of fun to be able to see how the Word of God just stands forever. No matter what season of time, it's always relevant. But in particular, the text out of 1 Peter is, is really exciting. Last week, we talked about what it meant uh, to risk it. And uh, in spite of the challenges that might be around you. To risk it, in other words, not letting uh, yourself consider all the possible ramifications if you were to live out for Jesus. But rather, just live it out. Be encouraged. Be confident in faith. And so, as Christ suffered, knowing, as what we just talked about during that time of communion, he knew for the joy set before him that the suffering was going to be worth it. And in the same way, for the joy set before us, that whatever suffering we have on this earth, there is something for eternity that we stand to gain. And that is the encouragement that Peter just keeps sowing in and out of his, uh, in and throughout his uh, text here in his epistle. And so last week we looked at, you know, and I showed some pictures of, of, some playground equipment that I grew up uh, playing on were a giant slide and a merry-go-round, things that where swings were also much taller and longer that have all been removed from our playgrounds and everything is much more safe, but also with it comes less joy. And so as Peter kind of says, in my opinion, it would be kind of the modern phrase, go big or go home. And I, and I kind of feel that's the attitude he's bringing to the text is that we have an opportunity to live out Jesus Christ. Don't allow the hindrances of risk stand in the way of being able to show the joy that God wants to exude through you. Because through the hope and the joy and the courage you live out, people will start to take notice. And it could be the leading of their own life change where they themselves will discover that which is found in Christ. So as we continue in the text, there is an opportunity here where Peter is now turning the page, and after having sown some deep principles within their heart about, you know, being willing to risk it, being courageous, being willing to go forward in spite of whatever uh, might happen, he's about to give what I would say is that locker room pep talk before they hit the field. Have you ever been in a locker room of a professional football team? Now, I am not an Eagles fan, but in December, I had the opportunity to go to uh, Lincoln Financial Field and receive a VIP tour of the stadium. 
As part of going into that stadium, I had the opportunity to go into the Eagles locker room and be able to see the space that is kind of a sacred space for the players before they rush to the field. And so a lot of people that were in ministry and, and churches in our district and the Evangelical Free Church were invited for this tour because our uh, district superintendent, one of them, uh, happens to be a former Eagles player. So he set up this tour. And, uh, and I got to stand in front of uh, Carson Wentz's locker. Uh, one of our youth pastors left a note in his locker. That's probably not legal, but he did so. Uh, never heard back from him. He left his cell number. But... Uh, so that I can tell you that probably security saw that on camera and said, we're not going to let that happen. Uh, but I got to stand in front of different people's lockers. Some of them, it's like, I know the players are like 320 pounds. And I'm like, how can they even sit in the chair between the, uh, these, these bases? But uh, it was a lot of fun uh, to go through there. And even though I'm not an Eagles fan, I definitely would say that it was quite the experience. The emotions and energy and the rush of feeling that moment was incredible. And yes, they even brought out the Super Bowl trophy for us to see. Now, they typically don't keep the Super Bowl trophy in the locker room, uh, but they thought for our tour to uh, bless us a little bit, they, they brought it out, and, uh, and so we were able to take pictures next to it. Now, some of you are saying, now, that's really bold of you, Tony, to show Eagles pictures in the Eagles locker room, even though you're a Broncos fan, and last week you were dissing on the Eagles. Well, you might thinking, be thinking that I'm trying to redeem myself, but the reality is that I've not been in any other locker room in the NFL. But I wanted to capture the energy that can happen in a locker room for a group of football players that are about to hit the field. So would you think of a moment where the coach is literally standing in his locker room and he's about to give the charge of what is going to happen in the moments to follow. And so in that moment, the, the, the coach is going to give energy and excitement uh, to his team. He's trying to get them pumped up. He's written a speech to speak about that game in hopes that they will then put their bodies on the line and give their best effort in defeating the opposing team. And then in that moment, as he is giving that opportunity to give the energy up, he's got this outline of what he wants to say to them to get them pumped up. As I was preparing to read and preach this text, I realized that as I outlined what Peter was speaking to, that if I was to give a locker room pep talk before a football team, before they hit the field, my outline would look similar to what Peter wrote here. So Bear with me as I read through this text and try to capture the energy that I believe Peter is writing these things down for us and for the hope of the future church that they, with vigor and excitement and confidence and courage that they will step forward and out onto that field and lay their bodies on the line. So let's begin by reading in 1 Peter chapter 4 in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with that same attitude. Because whoever suffers in this body is done with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their lives, uh, earthly lives, for human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
You have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you don't want to join them in their reckless and wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regards to the body. But live according to God in the spirit. So the first thing that that Peter speaks is if you are going to succeed in life or as the coach would say, if you're going to succeed on the field, you have to have your eyes on the end game. Regardless of the cost, you have to be so motivated that no matter what happens throughout the game or whatever might happen in your life, that you are willing to throw your life out there, your body out there, giving it your all, regardless of the cost. And he says that in doing so, you are taking on the exact same attitude as our champion, Jesus Christ. He was a one that didn't let the suffering that was going to happen next, the pain of what was going to happen next, to stand in the way of what was going to be accomplishing the greatest victory in the history of mankind. So he was always looking ahead, willing to endure that significant day of suffering for the sake of an eternity with all of us. Victory is sweet, which then makes the pain of preparing And going through it, all worth it. Then you see Peter speaking forward as like, okay, have the same attitude of Christ. And and where you're willing to do it all, regardless of the cost, regardless of the suffering. Then he says, now go after life doing the will of God. Go after life doing the will of God. Not the will of you. Not your individual will, but the will of God. In the same way, a team will not win on the field of play if they're going at it by the individual wills of each player. It requires a like-mindedness, a a unification behind the direction of the coach, the leader of the team. When they set the game plan in place, they're saying we have to keep the eyes on the prize. We have to keep our eyes on the goals. We have to keep our eyes on what we've prepared for because everything that's going to happen during this game will want to cause you to look to the left or to the right or to look behind and maybe you'll lose your desire and your passion and your energy to keep going forward. You see, it requires, in order for a team to win, a singular vision. It can't be several different wills. It can't be several different pictures. It has to be a singular vision. And that vision for the church, for those who are following after Jesus, is what the Father has established from the beginning of time. Is that he desires a relationship with us. He desires a people that he can call his own. And so for those who by faith trust in the work of Jesus Christ. They join the family of God. And then they anticipate the future that they will have with their heavenly father. But then 
as the coach would also say to a team in his locker room that, that might be ready to hit the field, he says, you've got to figure out what you did wrong in the past and avoid it and quit looking behind. You have to learn from your mistakes and go ahead. And so what you see in this text in verse 3, he says, for you have spent enough time in the past Doing what pagans do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Peter acknowledges that most of the people he's speaking to probably could check every one of those boxes that I have done something to that effect in the past. Now, when he says you've done enough of those things in the past, does he mean that there's a point or a threshold where it's like, it's permissible. And now you've done enough, so it's time to turn the page. Or is he saying something else? Well, in the text, when you understand what the word enough means in the Greek, it's to suggest that you have enough experience to know that this is not what we were supposed to do. This is not worth it. It's kind of like, I've been there, I've done that, and it didn't work. I am sick and tired of my old patterns I've reached this place where I don't want to go back anymore. It's not worth it. It's not speaking that this word enough is to suggest a quota. That, that there's a quota of reckless living that is allowed by God. In the culture of our brothers and sisters in our county, there is this, play, this community called the Amish. And in their development of their younger people and their adolescent years... There is a season called Roomspringa. The Roomspringa is an opportunity where basically the Amish young teenager can go and live pretty much recklessly and, and get basically all of their, their wild living out of them or sowing their wild oats as some might say. This room spring a season often in means that they indulge in the very things that are just spoken of in this text. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And during this time, many of these young Amish destroy their lives. And then once they get it out of them, they don't realize, oh, I've had enough. So then they go back and they become members of the Amish church. And they go for it as if nothing happened. The problem is the damage during that season is significant. They might suggest that this text permits them to such reckless living. The reality is, is that enough there is realizing that I've lived enough of the old life to know it's not worth it. I've lived enough of those stupid actions to know what the consequences are. I've lived out enough of those poor decisions to experience, to realize the patterns that God is offering is superior. This isn't meaning to say, again, once you've had enough, then you're good to go. Peter is acknowledging that for the true believer, the one that is Paul pursuing Christ, you are rescued from that lifestyle. You are rescued from the past. Why do we rush back into something that we know will destroy us? So he says, haven't you had enough? Haven't you realized that that was a faulty end? It was a false supposition that says this is worth it? 
Saying, no, you were redeemed. You were paid for to leave that, that which was destroying you. So that you have an opportunity for victory. In the same way the coach has coached up each individual player. So that they would then be able to operate in unison as a team. And each player has their faults and their weaknesses. Things that they've done in the past that are habits that will destroy the chemistry of the team. And so they've been working on it so that they can function together more in unity and like-mindedness so they can accomplish what they want to do on the field. The same principles hold true in the church. That God wants to use us, the followers of Christ, to make up the church to accomplish some great things here on this earth. Mostly the aspect of bringing glory to him. By seeing the lives of other people being transformed. Because they look at our lives and say, I want on that team. Because it's the winning team. They recognize the life that we're pursuing is the better life. They recognize that we have purpose. We re- they recognize that they see hope in us. And so therefore, we need to shed all of these former past ways of reckless living. So that... With that emptied past, they can see the hopeful future by the way we live. Peter also acknowledges in verse 4 that the ones you used to hang out with, doing all those things, the reckless and wild living that you might have done with a certain group of people, that when you start to empty yourself of those things, your friends are going to be the first to call you out. They're going to say, why are you doing this? That's not you. Why don't you keep doing the things we've always done together? And then when you stay the course of following after Jesus, guess what? Eventually, your friends are going to start mocking you. Peter says this. He says, your friends are going to be surprised that you do not continue to join them in their reckless and wild living. And then they will heap abuse upon you. Now, why would they do that? Well, first of all, because they have no aspirations or desire at this point in time in their life to pursue something that is greater, they want to continue to choose the faultless path, the the false path that says, this is worth it, all this fun is worth it, in the end of the day, just keep following me. They look at your life and they just simply, they don't get it. They don't get it. And, quite frankly, they don't want it. They see what you're doing and they're like, I don't want that. That's too religious for me. I don't want to give up control of my life. I want to keep doing what I've always done. Forget the fact the relationships around them are being destroyed. Their lives are being destroyed. They are, re- they are regularly unsatisfied. But they want to ignore that. So they make themselves naive and ignorant to the things that maybe are going on in your life that are improving your life and are starting to show hope. And when they see that and they don't get it and they don't want it, they also don't like how it makes them feel because it exposes It exposes them for the false way of living that they are choosing to do. It's a mirror upon the foolishness that they're choosing to live out. 
So in the same way that again, a coach is preparing his team for the field. He's like, keep your eyes on what is ahead. We've set a goal. We got to keep going there. We've got to leave our bad practices behind. And we have to prepare that there is going to be an opposition. There is going to be an opposition that does not want to see us succeed. But know this. In verse 5, he says, everyone's going to give an account. You're going to give an account before God. And your adversary is going to give an account before God. Then in verse 6, he says, But regardless of man's judgment, we get this opportunity to live by the Spirit of God. You see, when we, by faith, accept the work of the cross and Christ's suffering and trust in his coverage for our sins... He then promises that he will then help us to live this life of victory by doing that life with the help of the Holy Spirit. So we have that power of God that resides in us and through us that helps us succeed in daily living when our flesh might cause us to fail. Man, that sets us up for victory. Peter recognizes the church is going to go through difficult times. They are about to go through some of the worst times in the history of the church shortly after he writes this. And he's saying, stay the course. Leave behind former patterns. Do the will of God. Prepare for the opposition. Everybody will give an account. So don't worry about them. You're going to give an account too. And just in case you're getting fearful, the power of God will reside in you through his Holy Spirit. I see this, the point where the coach in the locker room says, now, let's go back over the game plan. I just told you that our enemy is going to be defeated. We have a goal that we are looking forward to. And for us as Christians, we are looking forward beyond this life. Our victory isn't in this life alone. Our victory is an eternal life with our Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and with the Father who is preparing a place for us. That is what we long for. And we're just simply sojourners through this life, experiencing victory day by day. Yet there's an adversary coming after us all the time. But that adversary will lose. And we know it to be true. But again, God desires to not only change your life, but he wants to change others' lives. And he, his primary strategy for changing other people's lives is through those lives he's already changed. And so for the church, the strategy for changing lives through your changed life is this. Continuing on in verse 7. It says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded, so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you then should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, 
They should do so with the strength that God provides. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So the strategy is this. To see lives changed through your life being changed is to stay clear of that which would cloud your mind and keep you from praying in a manner where you're aware of what you're saying. You see, God wants us engaging him in conversation. He wants us to be praying to him and interacting with him. That is not only us speaking to him, but it's also us receiving from him and, and letting the spirit speak to our spirit through his word and the inner voice that he provides with his Holy Spirit. And he is warning us, don't cloud your minds with other influences that would keep you from being able to hear that, which I want to speak to you, or to confuse the words you might say. So we're to stay clear of the influences that would cause us to be filled with something else. Then he says, love well, in verse 8. Love well, because it will cover over a multitude of sins. So you might be somebody who just struggles with certain flaws and mistakes. And yes, you can say, God is changing you day by day. But it's still obvious that certain things are a struggle for you. Well, Peter gives you good news. Love well. Love well. If you love on other people, they will look past your mistakes. They will give you a pass. They will help you. Uh, they will give you the benefit of the doubt when they can tell you truly care about them. Even strangers, even though you might be awkward or maybe you stumbled into the relationship, maybe you're not the best communicator. If they can tell that you genuinely care about them, they will give you the pass for any awkwardness or flaws you might carry. So love well. Then he says, host people without grumbling. Be hospitable without grumbling or complaining about them. Uh, this one hits me pretty good. I like to, I'm very hospitable. My wife and I love having people to our house. But there's just something about how people come into my home sometimes and they don't think carefully about the things that are there. I mean, I remember having teenagers come into my home when I was a youth pastor and they sent, tended to treat my home as if it was a basketball gymnasium. And it's very easy to want to complain. Sometimes, though, it gets even more difficult. I can kind of give them a pass because they're teenagers. But when I have adults come into my house and they start acting as if it's their own house... It's really easy to complain and get a little bit of a bitter spirit. And what he says is, listen, we're supposed to open our homes. We're supposed to be hospitable. Do so with a smile on your face. And don't grumble about it. Don't complain. Consider it a joy that you have a home, that you have the ability to serve others, and you have something to provide. Which then he leads into the verse 10 where he says, and serve others, utilizing the gifts that God has given you. Some of those gifts are, are physical gifts. Some of those gifts are spiritual gifts, but they're all God given. And he says, use those gifts to serve other people. And he mentions this phrase, which I just think is incredible, where he says, and be a good steward of the grace you've received. We've been given so much by God. Not only have we been given our salvation, that faith and the ability to believe in what Jesus has done for us and that his work was enough to cover over our sins, that's grace too. But then there's another grace that is given and that's that he gives us gifts to serve other people. We aren't 
deserving of the gifts he gives us, but he gives them freely. And what does he give them to us for? So that we can dispense them, that we can use them. And so we're to be a good steward of that which we've received by the way we've given of them. Then in verse 11, he says, and when you speak, speak as if they're the very words of God. You know, we're pretty loose-lipped at times. And keep in mind who's writing this text. This is Peter. For those who have studied the life of Peter, they might have given him that that stereotype of hoof-and-mouth Peter. Because he tended to always put his foot in his mouth by saying the wrong thing. Yet Peter is saying here in verse 11, speak as though you are speaking the very words of God. Or as I would say, speak with reverence. Speak with reverence every word as if it was God's. If we are that much more careful with the things we say, how much more effective would our words be in helping others see Jesus? Which is how he concludes this text in verse 11 when he says, so in everything we do, it's to bring glory and praise to God. Glory and praise to God. So speak as though your words were the very words of God. Serve with all the gifts that you've been given from God with the great grace you've been given because you're going to be a steward of it and he wants and expects you to use it well. And then he wants you to host people. He, He wants you to have people involved in your life And he wants you to love on them well, and he wants you to serve them well, and he wants you to pray on behalf of them well with a clear mind. It is this strategy that God gives us by which we can be an influence that can help others see there is hope found in Jesus Christ. Hope found in the opportunity to see your life transformed by the work of Jesus on the cross And the work of the Holy Spirit every day in our lives, transforming us and making us into a new person. And yes, as Peter says, we should expect opposition. But I have found that some of the people that in the past had mocked me before have now since become followers of Christ. I actually had somebody come back several years later and apologize for the way they treated me. And then were pleased to inform me that they are now following Jesus like me. Shouldn't that be a story that we experience at least once in our life? That someone can say thank you for living out Jesus in front of them because it helped them see that they needed him too? For many of us, God brought us out of a lifestyle that was destroying us. And we are now privileged with the opportunity to bear the name of Jesus. And so it is in that hope that we have in being with him for eternity that we are given the opportunity to glorify him most by declaring the hope and proclaiming the hope that is found in Jesus among those we live among. Let's pray now. Dear Jesus, I recognize that I had lived enough in the past to say that the life I was choosing to live that the world says is worth it, getting drunk, pursuing sensuality, 
doing things that are self-pleasing, self-glorifying, sometimes at the cost of other people. I recognize that that life was empty. I lived it enough to know it's empty. It's not worth it. And the pain from it and the embarrassment of it, the shame of it, the consequences of it was not worth it. But I'm thankful now, Jesus, that you give the opportunity to cover over all of that and to give us a new life, a new life that is filled with hope for that which is set before us, strength for that which is right before us right now, and courage to keep stepping forward in spite of so many unknowns. But Lord, even that, that isn't just to say thank you for what you've done for us, but it's an opportunity to then point to your work in our life so that others can pursue the same. Lord, it has been the prayer of many in this church and churches around us that you would bring a harvest of souls that many people will come to Jesus. And Lord, we don't want to be on the sidelines. Those of us who bear the name Jesus, we want to be right in the thick of it, seeing that lives are being transformed. One person at a time, through one testimony at a time. And may we be that testimony that miracles do happen. And I am one of those miracles. Thank you, Jesus. Because it is a grace that is not something that I have earned. But yet it's something you have freely given. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. would like to give you a few questions to discuss with those that might be around you that have watched in or listened in to this message. First question is this, have you had enough in living for yourself? Have you had enough in living for yourself? What in your past are you sick and tired of that you simply want to move on from? That seems to keep repeating itself in your life. What in your life that has been with you from the long past that you're just tired of, it's time to move on and turn a new page? Would you be willing to share that with somebody else so maybe they can encourage you and pray over you? Number two, have you allowed the mockery of some of your friends or the potential mockery of some of your friends to keep you from being courageous for Christ? What needs to change in how you engage these relationships that don't want to see you change and live for Christ? Do you need to move on from some of those relationships? Or do you just simply need greater strength to be the influence in those relationships rather than the influenced? Again, you can find strength and help and guidance from those that are maybe around you right now. What does it look like to maybe change the friend dynamic? Maybe it's the friends themselves, but maybe it's simply on how you interface with those friends. Lastly, what area in your life can you allow new change to come that would give more attention to Christ's work in your life? 
Maybe you haven't taken that risk that we talked about last week to allow what God is doing in your life be seen by others. Maybe you've been playing it safe with among some of those friends. Maybe there's something you need to change. One of the first things that had to change in me was my language, the things I said. And in this text, it says, speak as though you're speaking the very words of God. Maybe you need to change the language you use when you're with your friends. Maybe you need to change the behavior of what you do with your friends. Maybe you've allowed other influences to be what intoxicates your mind versus God himself. So what needs to change in you to allow the work that Christ is doing in you be seen by others? It is in that that I want to encourage you to let what God has prepared you for be taken to the field of life because the joy that is set before us and the joy that was set before him is worth whatever challenges or pain or even victories we experience here on this earth to be able to keep going, not looking to the left or the right, but keep pursuing Jesus. Having said that, we love you. God bless you. Stay safe. And we still anticipate the day when we can gather together once again.